Today we're celebrating the appearance of Prabhupada, so every guru has such a day. We call it the Vyasa Puja, where we acknowledge the representation of Vyasadev. And with regard to Sridhar Marsh's Vyasa Puja, it was that event that Prabhupada took his fledgling disciples to in India to teach them how to perform the Guru Puja or the Vyasa Puja. He had a small uh, group, I think it was the, the first group that came over to India after he had come to America and preached and gathered up some disciples and he, and he returned for the first time. So as you can understand that we weren't having a Guru Puja for Prabhupada. Now you log into Prabhupada's mission, of course it's a standard feature. Persons couldn't think of having a day without it, but there were many days and years even before that was instituted in Iskon. Not that it shouldn't be, but every day really should be a, a Guru Puja. And um, as with Jadmastami, as we discussed to some extent last night, so with the Vyasa Puja, it's a day that remembering the importance of the descent of Krishna in the form of Sri Guru, empowering a, a Vaishnava, it should serve to inspire us for, for a number of days, for many days, and until we get to the point where every day we are appreciating our indebtedness and showing our gratitude, gratitude which is of course the basis of one of the basic elements in the foundation of bhakti. So anyway, Prabhupada wanted to see this instituted to some extent, at least on his, uh, as it's appropriate on the appearance day of the Guru. So he took the disciples to Sridhar Marsh's moth, and it was the day of his uh, appearance. They observed the festival. And that was the first place also that the devotees, disciples of Prabhupada, heard the chanting, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada, which again, you couldn't imagine Prabhupada's movement without that, before and after and <laughs> in between. And uh, that's where they first heard it. They heard it at Chidor Marjus Moth from the beautiful uh, lotus mouth of Akinchen Krishna Das Babaji Maharaj, a godbrother of Prabhupada, disciple of Bhakti Sarasthi Thakur, who was close with Prabhupada and with Sridhar Maharaj. He would always attend Sridhar Maharaj's Vyasa Puja whenever whenever possible. He was a Babaji, so he used to walk barefoot everywhere, so if he happened to be in he walked many times between Navadweep and, and Vrindavan, which is how far? A thousand miles. So if you could get there on time. <laughs> he was there. He used to go to the, wor- the birthplace of Sridhar Maharaj and uh, do worship there also. Kinchina Krishnadats Babaji Maharaj. Jai. He was famous for, for his kirtan, ecstatic kirtan and, and melodious voice. And so he led a kirtan on that occasion, and it, I think they must have sung the prayer, the famous prayer of Sridhar Maharaj that's inscribed on all the walls, practically, of every mission that branched off of the original Gaudiya mission of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, a prayer that Prabhupada asked one of his sannyasi disciples, who was at the time the president of Vrindavan, that, it, that he see that it, we sung every day in every one of his temples. A song written by Sridhar Maharaj in glorification of Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, the Prabhupada of our Prabhupada. Trivik Ramaswamy, my godbrother, once told me he was in Boston, not Boston, excuse me, but in Buffalo, New York, 
in the early days of the mission, and the Prabhupada came, and he came into his quarters, the quarters they had arranged for him, and he was unpacking some of his things. His disciples were helping him unpack, and as they opened his suitcase, they found a, a small picture of Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And so they looked at it, and there was kind of a hesitation for a second. And Prabhupada looked over and said, put Prabhupada over here. And they all, this was very early on, and Prabhupada noticed there, they were only accustomed in those days mostly to calling Prabhupada, Prabhupada. And he laughed and he said, he, he kind of noticed what they were thinking, and he said, yes, I have my Prabhupada also. <laughs> so, a nice and beautiful and profound song in glorification of Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and this is being sung by Kinchin Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj on the day of Sridhar Maharaj's appearance at Sridhar Maharaj's moth, and at the end of it, then he began, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada, Jai Prabhupada. And the devotees heard that, Prabhupada's disciples, and although they were addressing him as Prabhupada, they didn't have the the sense or the feeling or the boldness. We were not much to be innovative in those days and uh, do something that wasn't um, for fear of doing something that wouldn't be authorized. So they asked Prabhupada, could we also, after the festival, chant that? That was very nice. He gave permission. came from there. And the lesson that uh, of how to observe the Vyasa Puja that uh, is so uh, nicely observed in, uh, in all the Prabhupada's temples and, and in so many temples outside of Prabhupada's mission as well. Of course, we have a little a limited facility here. We can't cook 108 uh, preparations and do a big abhishek and so forth. But Prabhupada was also um, quick to remark once that the uh, in, in an offering that he himself wrote in glorification of his Prabhupada that the that the Guru Par Puja is not merely an offering of fruits and flowers and all the rituals that uh, surround such an event. But uh, what did he say? If it's not just an offering of fruits and flowers, then I forget the exact words, but the spirit is die to live, to use Sridhar Maharaj's language. That we shouldn't go to the Guru uh, cutting a return ticket with a one-way ticket, placing ourselves in his hands, just like when we, uh, during the initiation, and we have sometimes a homa, fire, again, so many things are thrown in there. It's not just throwing some rice, and, but it's symbolic of putting ourselves into the fire. We, we come to learn that, that there is a sacrifice that this is all about, and, and we are the, we are what's being sacrificed. <laughs> Our sense, that is, a false sense of self, that should be put in the fire. And, um, of course, Prabhupada very much embodied the kind of sacrifice that he exhibited was uh, extraordinary, and so much so that it even was hard for some people to understand it. It was dynamic in its nature. It's nice to speak on a day like this about Prabhupada's accomplishments, which could take us a long time, many lifetimes. Extraordinary accomplishments in, in uh opening temples, at least in our tradition, and perhaps, for that matter, in any Hindu spiritual tradition, I, it, it may be that no one had, has opened more 
more temples, would speak of opening them internationally, any particular sect or any particular person in any one of the many sects of, of Hinduism. Certainly, we know that's true with regard to our own tradition, Gaudi Vaishnavism. You know that Prabhupada had uh, his astrological chart done. I guess he didn't have it done, but his parents did, as was this, the tradition. And it was said in there by his astrologer that, what did it say? He would become open 108 temples. So he wasn't quite right. <laughs> I think he opened he probably more than that, or by his influence. We, we, that's also to be considered, even after his departure, by the, by the influence of his, his influence over his disciples. Uh, so many temples were opened. Well, we couldn't count them all, I don't think. And that is a very... Uh, difficult thing to do, to open a temple and see to the the seva puja of the deities, as much as we can also play that down inappropriately, so philosophically, opening temples and temple worship is for neophytes. It's for erecting a, an edifice that people can see and identify with. We're centrally oriented, externally oriented, so we need external symbols to give us some connection with the, the inner world. When Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsitaka was preaching in Mayapur, there was uh, a man who later became Kunjababa, Kunjabi Haridas, and later Bhakti Vilas Tirtha Maharaj, who recognized the power and purity and importance of his message not only the message of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but his particular emphasis on Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which was an emphasis to make it contemporary and to, and to distribute it in a, in, a, in a wide way and in a, a kind of a out-of-the-box thinking about the tradition, which would be a way in which we could characterize Bhakti Sarantasasri Thakur. But he was a, just a, practically a, a lone person under the inspiration of Bhakti Vinod Thakur at Yogapit, the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, just one man preaching. And Bhakti Vilas Tirtamarsh heard that and could understand this this should be organized. This somehow this should be organized and there should be some some buildings should be erected and flags to draw attention to this. So he became the most important person in Bhakti Sarsarsarsarsarsar Thakur's mission in, in terms of making it uh, uh, available and invisible. He was the, the manager of the mission. So those things are important for the general public to identify with and acknowledge something's going on. If a building goes up, and they think something must be going on. Something can be going on if no building is going up, and perhaps even, perhaps even more so. In fact, the building is going up, and hopefully by identifying with it, we'll understand what is the the spirit behind it and through the ritual enter into that and and of course at that point then the temple worship and so forth can for the most part be retired. One can sit and chant Hare Krishna and be absorbed in, in spiritual consciousness. Now if we chant Hare Krishna there's a likelihood that we may fall asleep but they, uh, it's hard to fall asleep while you're worshipping the deity because it requires that you're standing up for the most part or uh, that, that your senses are all, all involved, seeing the deity, some prayer has to be offered to the deity, and so forth. 
one has to have just taken a bath and so the deity in one sense transcendentally speaking is a lesser manifestation of the absolute than the name of krishna but it it enables us to become involved in such a way that we can come to appreciate the holy name that much more and take advantage of the chanting and become absorbed in the chanting so that deity worship will, will help us very much so Prabhupada opened so many temples and as I say we can speak about it as a as a lower thing and sometimes people say just opening so many temples that doesn't mean very much there should be a temple in the heart and that's true but the person who opened so many temples as he did in such a big way certainly had a temple for Radha and Krishna in his heart and that's of course just one of his accomplishments it's mind-boggling to me to think about because um, here we are, we're, we're trying to manifest one, one little temple here in the, in the forest. And Prabhupada, during his presence, manifested temples in cities and countries that he never went to, where there were hundreds of devotees worshipping the deity and um, finding the means to, uh, to finance the whole affair. And they were enthusiastically participating. One of the characteristics of Prabhupada's movement was the... Uh, the standard of the worship of the deity, very high. Even today, any pious Hindu goes to Vrindavan, the temple they like the most is Krishna Balaram. Clean and, and um, worship is very uh, nicely done, very opulent. Prabhupada made a, put considerable emphasis on that temple worship and deity worship for good reason. And it should be done nicely, appropriately, proper cleanliness and proper procedures and so forth but of course the spirit of it proper spirit should be behind it as well you can find temple where that where worship is going on very nicely but it's not very appealing to Krishna because in the hearts of the persons doing the worship there is um, a separate agenda many temples are opened in India for example just for uh, making a living even uh, it's uh, sometimes uh, some false place of pilgrimage is, is established the temple is built so that the pilgrims will be built. This is uh, not the kind of worship we're interested in. This is not the kind of worship the prophet taught his disciples to do. They both had the right spirit, and by his grace, they technically executed the worship very nicely. Sometimes there was discrepancy. I remember when the Krishna Balaram temple opened, which was such a, a milestone for Prabhupada, which takes us in the direction of, of, of what I want to talk about. Other than Prabhupada's accomplishments, which are enormous and, and as I say, could take us a long time to discuss, and that is, other than his accomplishments, the sacrifice that he was involved in, personal sacrifice, the trouble, so to speak, that he took that caused all those accomplishments to manifest. So we'd like to sometimes talk about the accomplishments, but we should also talk about the days when Prabhupada wasn't, didn't seem to be accomplishing anything and how he was struggling alone. I remember when I first heard those stories, it was the most endearing part of Prabhupada's leela to me, to think, to put the two together, the accomplishments and the self-sacrifice and struggle that was involved. But, as I say, with regard to the accomplishments in deity worship, for example, the temple opening, it was, it was done very nicely and executed 
technically very nicely and for the most part with with the right uh, spirit. But when Prabhupada opened the Krishna Balaram temple, which was a great milestone for him and was a, a great struggle, it's ironic, but to open a temple in Vrindavan where Prabhupada used to say there's 5,000 temples and every home is a temple. Prabhupada had a great struggle to open a temple. Great struggle with the lo locals, pundits, caste Goswamis, and so many. Because, of course, his temple was filled with Western devotees and um, Ungrazis, the foreigners, Malechas, and so forth, uh, as sometimes they we referred to as. It was a great struggle for him, as were the other temples, the main temples that he established in India, a great struggle in Bombay and in Mayapur as well. But um, before going into that at some length, the point, concluding point about the deity worship, I'd like to make, it's just, I'm just reminded of a personal incident, because the opening of the Krishna Balaram temple was was very dear to me as well. The group of devotees that I was working with had a lot to do with assisting Prabhupada in manifesting that temple. Because the fun, the, all of the funds for it came from two sources. The Book Trust, which our party at the time was the biggest contributor to. We just had a handful of a few men. But uh, we were the largest contributor. And another party that uh, was collecting funds for Prabhupada's efforts in India. In fact, Prabhupada, when it was established, he put an engraved sign on there uh, uh, dedicated to those two groups manifesting the temple. So while we were distributing books and we were aware of Prabhupada's struggle and it was factored into our consciousness what we were doing besides helping the Prabhupada manifest the scriptures and disseminate them and so forth, also manifest the Krishna Balaram temple in Vrindavan. I met you, Brahma, if you may remember, in Vrindavan just the year before that temple, I think, was established. Right. We were staying at the Fogel Ashram, and Prabhupada was coming down and giving talks at night. And so it, it took it took a while for him to manifest it. But anyway, when it did, beautiful deities and three altars, and the worship was very, uh, very nice, all first-class paraphernalia. And every night, the festival for opening it, it went on for about a week, a few days beforehand and a few days afterwards. And afterwards, so many uh, political dignitaries were coming visiting the temple and um, acknowledging Prabhupada's success. So in the evenings, he would be having a darshan in his room, and then he would take, when the Arctic began at 7 o'clock, he would take the dignitaries, and they would go and have darshan and go from altar to altar. So on one day, I arranged that myself and two of my godbrothers who were on my party would offer the Arctic. And... Um, because we used to travel always and sell the books and we didn't have much opportunity for worshipping the deities because each temple had the pujaris and standards and so forth and we were uh, largely doing Sankirtan. And we, we had an interest, of course, in the deity worship. I, I wrote Prabhupada about it once and he told me to get little Gornitai deities and put them in a box and take them with me, worship them in the morning and then put them to sleep and go out and sell books and wake them the next morning. And Those deities are here. Mm -hmm. They've been worshipped for many years. Anyway, in light of that, uh, our interest in 
worshiping a deity and our lack of facility. There we were. We had helped Prabhupada establish this temple, and it was part of our meditation that uh, inspired us in the austerity of selling the books and so forth. And so I kind of pushed my way in, and by my enthusiasm, I, I got the Pujaris to agree to let us do the Arctic. And so uh, there were the three altars, and and every move was like choreographed. Everyone would bend down at the same time, light the lamp, and then when all the lamps were lit, stand up. It was very, uh, it was very nice, but uh, a couple of the devotees who were on my party and didn't share the same kind of, didn't have the same kind of boldness as I did. We were all pretty bold, but I guess I was the boldest one in the group overall for going out and selling the books and the basis of my boldness, a lot, a lot of them got involved or they got inspired. And so here was a manifestation of it in relation to the deity worship. Now, this boldness has some value, actually. It, it, if it's properly applied, <laughs> it can be a good quality. I had it in relation to Prabhupada because there was a pretty good screening that was in place in Prabhupada's mission for keeping Prabhupada's own disciples from bothering him or going to see him and appropriately to some extent but the force of my own attachment for Prabhupada propelled me to kind of break through that screen and uh, I've always found that Prabhupada appreciated it every morning for example wherever Prabhupada was he would go on a morning walk and after Mangal Artik some of the, the leaders of the entourage of Prabhupada would make an announcement that only sannyasis and GBC is going to go on the morning walk with Prabhupada. I mean, every devotee in the temple probably would have wanted to go, no doubt. So it was practical, and most devotees followed that. But I, <laughs> I did, and I went anyway. So I guess it's a sign of insubordination in one sense. But if that insubordination is based on the right sentiment, it also can be pleasing to Prabhupada. In fact, it's, it's that kind of boldness that uh, our Raghunuga Bhakti is, is all about. Some kind of boldness to go for something that even you're not qualified for, in a sense, to be to, to aspire for it. So I went, and, and Prabhupada was always happy to see me. You know, he used to, used to talk to me on the walks and so forth. I remember once I was in Prabhupada's room in Chicago, where he was visiting. He was giving darshan and uh, again, I kind of pushed my way in there, and no one could say anything because I was the so-called incarnation of book distribution, so they kind of let me in, although officially I wasn't supposed to be there. But another fellow, a godbrother of mine named Primarnava, he really wanted to get in too, and they wouldn't let him in. And then he went outside, and he climbed up on the ledge, and he had his ear on the window, just like trying to hear what was what was going on in there, what what Prabhupada was saying. And then he slipped and fell and there was a big crash and a disturbance to the darshan. And Prabhupada said, what was that? And the, the leaders were all upset, you know, it's a devotee is a and Prabhupada said he wants to hear. Bring him in. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu saw the he used to stand at the stamba of Garuda and have the darshan of Jagannath, which is some distance from the deity. And um on one occasion, a lady climbed up in the crowd onto Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's shoulder, like pushing herself up on his shoulder to see the deity of 
Jagannath to have the darshan. Very inappropriate. He was a sannyasi. He's God. <laughs> and she's climbing up, maybe putting her foot on him and so forth. And so the immediate associates of Mahaprabhu took exception to that, chastised her. Mahaprabhu chastised them. He said, I, I only had that kind of eagerness to see Jagannath, that I could even break the rules to see him. And I would have really un understood what the rules are for. So it has its value anyway. On this occasion, I kind of pushed my way in and, and, and encouraged the other devotees. No, you know, all year you've been working hard to manifest this temple, and I should come have the opportunity to serve the deity. So we did it, and but as I mentioned, it was like very precise how to do it. And the devotees, the other two devotees, were a little nervous, and and Vaisheshika, I think he was worshiping Radha Shamsuna, which was the third altar, and he. He uh, got out of step, and he was so nervous. The prophet was in the crowd, and here we were. He offered the wrong item, like, out of order, and the whole thing messed up. And there was Prabhupada with the governor or whomever. And so he went back to his quarters, and then he asked, like, you know, drumming his fingers, who was that offering that arctic? Such a discrepancy. And then one of the devotees said, Well, that was Stripper Arimarj's man. And Prabhupada said, Oh, all right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so he knew our hearts were in, the, were in the right place. So the heart may not be in the, it should be in the right place, even the technical aspects may not, but, but we should bring the two together. And that was a characteristic of Prabhupada's movement. And it's technically correct, and, and the, the hearts were in the, in the right place worshipping the deities. So that was no small accomplishment. So many temples and paka, deity worship, and such enthusiasm for worshipping the deity. Also, I remember in Los Angeles, when I first got, uh, when, when I got my second initiation from Prabhupada, there was a queue for getting in, for Brahmins, as we called ourselves, we got, in those days, if we got second initiation, to offer the Arctic. So all scheduled out, and, of course, there were, what, six Arctics in a day. And they were all, you had to find your place in there. Maybe once a week you could get a slot. And if you didn't show up, that's it. You're off the list. Finish. So there was such uh, enthusiasm to worship the deity generated by Prabhupada. It's very extraordinary. Shidamarsh once commented, with regard to the enthusiasm of Prabhupada's disciples in general, that usually, he said, Guru will have a, a few disciples who are very enthusiastic and a larger circle who are participating in some respect. But Prabhupada, he said, one of the characteristics of his mission was that he had so many enthusiastic disciples. So that very, uh, the kind of sacrifice that his life was about that caused those wonderful accomplishments that we like to talk about to, to manifest, he also instilled that in the hearts of his disciples. And there was nothing, practically, nothing that we wouldn't do. There was no difficulty that um, was too difficult for us to deal with if it, uh, if it was required in his service. Selling books in 30 below zero weather in February in Chicago and, and living in a van and simply uh, taking a shower from a gallon, empty gallon jug of milk in the cold and 
so many physical austerities, mental austerities, and and it's all really a, a, a reflection of his own life of sacrifice. We were talking a little bit about his accomplishments, and then correspondingly his sacrifice. I don't want to say that his only accomplishment, of course, was establishing temples, but uh, as we know, he, he wrote so many books as well, 30-some-odd volumes of, of books while traveling the whole of the world and writing enough letters to fill six large, hardbound volumes of correspondence, managing a whole international movement at the same time, dealing with the particulars of the devotees, and you can imagine, I mean, just so many temples, so many problems that uh, could arise in managing them, organizing them. It's mind-boggling. The only th thing that we can conclude, as Sridhar Maharaj appropriately did, was that some extraordinary um, dispensation of uh, Godhead manifested in him. And as Sridhar Maharaj noted, at a point where he had fully emptied himself out, emptied himself out. So this is required, and that's what his uh, life of uh, sacrifice involved. In no small uh, measure, he was um, self-sacrificing, and as I say, those days were very, to hear about, were very endearing to me. I very much identified with that, and we should try to identify with that. As I said yesterday, and I'm saying now, I want to emphasize, as much as we identify with the ideals, we should identify with the means to go there. Try to put that in place. And in a word, that means is the sacrifice. Prabhupada uh, didn't go from door to door doing madukari. A madukari is a bee. Who Madhu means honey. So who, who kind of a bee doing madukari. What does the bee do? The bee goes from flower to flower, stays at each flower just long enough to take a little, what, pollen, collecting that pollen and makes, makes the honey. So in the Gaudi Sampradaya, this, there's a practice called Madhukari, where Madhukari's devotees, renounced devotees, they sustain themselves by going from house to house begging some chapatis, and whatever they get, that's what they live on. A godbrother of mine was doing that couple years back and living in in the brudge and we were talking some of us about going to a certain area of the brudge and this fellow had happened to be there he wasn't part of our group but he happened to be there and um, he said oh madukari is very good there in that village madukari is very good i turned him i said marsh you aren't doing madukari because he had gone there and he was doing that practice. I said, you are not doing Madhukari. You cannot be thinking like that. That is not Madhukari. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Who goes and begs door to door, if he starts to think, oh, Madhukari is good over here. They give over here. The chapatis are buttered here. <laughs> then the whole thing is <laughs> goes to hell. It's, everything's lost. And you're know, just thinking of maintaining yourself. And there happens to be a system, of course, in Vrindavan for that. No, the sadhu comes. You know, we give them some chapati. So it certainly is an austere lifestyle. But then again, there's an arrangement for it, for sadhus. So they can surely get something. Now, Prabhupada didn't do that. Sometimes I've heard he criticize it. What is this? And take the, the sannyas, dress, and flying in the airplanes, and 
what does this have to do with uh, Raghunuga Bhakti? How can he be thinking of Krishna, meditating on Krishna, constantly flying in airplanes all over the way? He should sit in the Dham, beg as a humble beggar, doing madhukari, whatever he gets, living on that, meditating upon Krishna. This is the standard of the real sadhus. This is some aberration. Prattle told me like that once, criticizing Prabhupada. I said it's true that Prabhupada didn't sit in Vrindavan and do that. And he was flying all over the world. And it is hard to imagine how someone could be thinking of Krishna constantly while flying in airplanes all over the world, managing temples and so forth and so on. But um, I told him you should try to consider what that came out of. Prabhupada, of course, didn't have an airplane to fly in when he first came to America. He logged on to a freighter and um, got passage. And um, he didn't bring a tiffin full of chapatis with him. And he was going to a land where there was no system for Madhukari. You can't go around New York City dressed as a sadhu and, and expect to get chapatis. They don't even know what a chapati is. And even if they were to give you something to eat, from Vaishnav standards, it might not be edible. It might not even be considered food. So I told him like this, Prabhupada went into this type of situation, lived in the Bowery in New York as a homeless person, homeless person, and he really didn't know where he would get his next meal. It was like going to another planet. If you see the letters that Prabhupada wrote when he first came, he was writing to Gaudivedanta Samiti where he had taken sannyas from Bhakti uh, Pragyan Keshav Maharaj, and he was writing to the devotees there, he was writing to Narayan Maharaj, who was uh, one of the principal disciples of Keshav Maharaj, and because that was the moth that he was most recently affiliated with. He had been affiliated with it in that moth and writing, the uh, editing the magazine of that moth for some time, but then he left it because he had a bigger, more expansive idea for publishing his Back to Godhead, although he couldn't manifest it for some time. He had a bigger idea and he wanted to pursue that. So... He wasn't in the mission, but then he went and took sannyas from Keshav Maharaj. Anyway, so there was some affiliation, and he was writing letters, and if you read the letters, he was asking for send some cartels, send a murdunga, help me. And um, if you read the letters, the Prabhupada is describing his experience. It's like he went to a different planet. He said, here there are so many lights at night. It's like uh, daytime. He said, and everybody has a car. And they have no driver. In India, who has a car means, at least especially in those days, 30 years ago, was a wealthy person. When I first came to Vrindavan, to see a car in Vrindavan was very, 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 very rare. We came for, uh, from Calcutta to uh, Mathura train station, and there was no motor rickshaw to go from Mathura to Vrindavan. We had to take a tonga, horse and buggy, which was very nice and very charming. It was very quaint. Nowadays, you can find traffic jams in Vrindavan, in front of the Krishna Balaram temple, heading into the into town. So things have changed. But what to speak of then, 35, 40 years ago, Prabhupada's experience 50 years ago in, in India. So coming to America, in India then, only rich man had a car, and of course, rich man had a driver. So <laughs> Prabhupada said, everybody's got a car, and, there's, and they have no driver. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? <laughs> He's describing it, as if it's, uh, it's like he'd gone to the moon, like a different planet. 
So he said himself when he got off the boat in Boston, I didn't know whether to turn left or right. But he knew what he had to do, and, and he was empowered to do it, and it, it manifest. It took a little time, even in New York. Before that, in India, she struggled for so long. Someone just wrote me a letter, an email, and asked me, did Prabhupada initiate anybody before he formed ISKCON? He said, please answer me, this is vital to me to know. And if he did, did he do it as a Ritvik on behalf of Bhakti Siddhanta, or did he make his own disciple? I'm trying to make my decision on who to take initiation from, and this is information is vital to me. Please, please answer. Nice fellow, he's written s several questions over the years. And I'm trying to understand what, what he's... He's very inspired by the Sangha, too, so I guess I'm on his list. But um, I thought about it, and um, I guess what he was thinking was, well, if Prabhupada initiated somebody before he formed ISKCON, then you can... And Prabhupada implicitly agrees that you can be his disciple and be connected with him even though you're not inside of ISKCON. Maybe he's thinking like that. He, he thinks this will be the conclusive evidence. <laughs> and that uh, if Prabhupada did it and made the disciple himself rather than the disciple being a, a so-called Ritvik disciple of Bhakti Siddhanta, that, that also defeats that idea. I, that's the only thing I can imagine that he's thinking of. It's a, rather a strange idea, but anyway, I'll try to reply to him. And the answer is yes, that of course Prabhupada did. He initiated the disciple in, in Jansi, where he formed the League of Devotees, and where the League of Devotees folded. Struggling at that time as a Vanaprastha, he hadn't taken sannyas yet, he was trying to preach, and um, he wasn't getting uh, a very good reception. Then he went to Vrindavan, and after he took sannyas, he lived in Vrindavan, and he would beg enough money. He was living in the Radhadamadar temple for, for a large part of the time, and he would get his meal from the Rajbhog offering to Radhadamadar and Jiva Goswami's temple that was offered to the deity once a day that he would uh, take as his meal. And whatever money he collected, he didn't spend it on food. He spent it on, on getting a train ticket, and that's third-class train, of course, where they also put the goats and and everything imaginable. It's unimaginable almost for a Western person to ride in a third-class train, but that's all probably could afford. One, I think he owned one, uh, one and a half sets of cloth. Maybe he would uh, bathe, put on the gumption, bathe his clothes, dry them, and then put that set on. The weather's warm there, of course, for the most part. And uh, this way he was living, and uh, whatever funds he could raise, he put them into, not going to Delhi for sightseeing, but going to Delhi to deal with the press, the printer and the printing of his Bank to Godhead magazine. And then staying there when the issue came out, bargaining with the printer to get some credit. Unheard of. Today, they're just talking about credit in India. Now maybe some systems are in place for getting buying on credit. I wouldn't speak of then 50 years ago, getting credit. But he would negotiate credit with the printer, right, not that I guess again, not that there was a system for it, but just the sincerity. Even though it seemed absolutely impractical to the printer, you're spending every last penny you have, and you have hardly any. Every last paisa, and you have hardly any. Living as a, as a beggar, whatever you're getting, you're spending to print this magazine, and you have this idea that it's going to be like a Time or Newsweek, some Western magazine, and you're just one fellow, <laughs> and you can't even pay me for this. 
and you don't even have the customers to buy it. Why are you doing this? It didn't make any sense to the man. Still, he gave credit <laughs> to Prabhupada so that it could be printed. And I don't know if he always got paid, but there was something, a spark in Prabhupada's eye, a vision that he had that the man could glimpse to some extent and was attracted to. He facilitated Prabhupada, and Prabhupada would stay over then when the issue came out in Delhi and go to the tea stalls where the, everyone's talking politics, politics, government. You know, India's still a developing nation trying to define itself politically and more so. In those days, it was just only shortly after the uh, Swaraj, after independence, in the mid-late 40s, 50s. And there, Prabhupada was going, trying to distribute his back to Godhead magazine, writing contemporary articles. He would glimpse whatever he could, whatever scraps of paper he could get from from the world outside, the Western world. Then he would uh, he would think that, that uh, based on that, he would then, then write something. Somebody, I think it was Brahma, was it you, who told me that he was able to get some tracts from the Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a magazine called Awake, and in that they... They try to write about contemporary issues, and uh, they describe how bad the world is, and and they cite many examples and so forth, and therefore the need for surrendering to Jesus and so forth. So that was one of his uh, mediums through which he would get information about the world that he wanted to conquer for Krishna. So he always didn't get always the best information. So sometimes when he wrote based on certain information he got, when we read it doesn't make uh, much sense as we think everything he says should, but that's one of the reasons. It's like when Prabhupada learned in school from a British teacher that women had brains that were only 32 ounces and men had 64. He said, well, men are more intelligent. They're saying and the science, the scientists are saying it. So, <laughs> anyway, the point is that not what information he gathered, but his eagerness to gather that information. Imagine this now. He had eagerness to gather information about the world. That's why I say people couldn't understand his enthusiasm and self-sacrificing because the characteristic self-sacrificing person in a Godi tradition would renounce and go and live in the Vrindavan and collect information from the Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita, the writings of the Goswamis, and mine that and try to bring out jewels of insight and, and realization to decorate their hearts. And here's a person, he's, every opportunity he gets to find out about the world, scraps of paper, perhaps finding in the trash, some newspaper article or something. So, Vaishnavera Kriyamudra Bhignana Bhujai. Very difficult to understand the person, the, the character of a real Vaishnava, what it's all about. He could take in all that information, gather as much as he could, and never be contaminated by it. Only use that for propagating Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teaching. Not everybody can do that. I knew that Prabhupada liked to collect information and hear what people were saying. He used to ask me whenever I would meet with him, he would say, so what are they saying, Dripa what are they saying? Because I was always in touch with the common people distributing the books. He would want to hear their arguments. So at one point in the mission, I hadn't heard from Prabhupada for some time. I didn't have any excuse for writing him a letter, so I didn't, but I, I wanted to hear from him. So... A godbrother of mine, Dristadunda Maharaj, he had, I met with him, uh, we bumped into one another, and he had a magazine, a, a, a National Geographic magazine, and 
the whole focus of that issue was about findings in modern science. Mr. Dimon was a very smart man. He was reading that magazine and thinking about modern science in relation to Gaudiya Vaishnavism and so forth. And Prabhupada, of course, was interested in what the scientists were saying. And so the Maharaj showed it to me, and I, and I thought, oh, I'll send this to Prabhupada. He's interested in hearing about all this, uh, these uh, scientists. I couldn't read it. It was, it was, it wasn't, it was over. My science was my worst subject in school, and I wasn't very good in any of them, so it was, I didn't have much of an inclination towards it. But anyway, I, I, I thought of it like that. This is an excuse. I'll send this to Prabhupada. This is the latest thing, scientific thinking. It'll be an excuse to write to Prabhupada. So I wrote, and I enclosed the magazine. This is what the scientists are thinking, Prabhupada. I wanted to share it with you, and um, so forth. So Prabhupada wrote back, and he said, and I said, I'm traveling in, in a van from temple to temple, and organizing books at the distribution at the airports. I told him a little bit about what I was doing at that time. And of course he knew about my basic party and so forth and what I was doing, but I gave a few insignificant details. And the main thing that I was sending him was the magazine. So Prabhupada wrote back, it's very nice that you are living simply, traveling, and preaching. Please continue this program. It's pleasing me very much. You're ever well-wisher. I see Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. Then that's typed out in his signature. And then at the bottom, he personally put an asterisk, and he wrote, the magazine is overly materialistic. <laughs> so I took it as the prophet was, was teaching. Not everybody can do that, you understand? Just collect information and not be contaminated by that and distracted and so forth. After I'd taken sannyas from Prabhupada, a few months later, Prabhupada came to America in 1975, and he was going to the different Rathiatras. And then he went to New York, and um, I was uh, had the fortune of following him with, with his troop to some extent. And uh, I was in New York with him, and, and the, the temple, I think, had just manifested that 55th Street temple in Manhattan, which was another wonderful uh, milestone for Prabhupada to have his, what he called a skyscraper, a skyscraper in, uh, in Manhattan. And his, he was on the 11th floor. The 11th floor was Prabhupada's floor. And I was sitting with Prabhupada. was a young man. I was only 25, and I'd just taken sannyas. And Prabhupada said to me, Have you seen the New York women? No, I didn't know what to say. Am I supposed to say, Yeah, <laughs> they're great, aren't they? Or what? <laughs> uh, so I just kind of remained silent. He said, Have you seen them? He said, They are so beautiful. New York women, they are so beautiful. And uh, he was going on talking about their characteristics and so forth. And, and I was just listening and uh, watching him. And then he just naturally, he just revealed kind of, uh, not purposely, but just naturally wh where he was at. And he said, I said that the Vishnu Maya is so, so wonderful. They are controlling every man in the city by their charm and beauty. And the whole, and they went off like the whole world is working like this. And so he was able to look at the beautiful women of New York, as he described them, and I'll think of them only in relation to Krishna as the manifestations of the energy of Krishna and how that energy works and creates a spell, their charm and beauty, bewilders the man, and the whole thing is going on on this basis of attraction between man and woman. The whole city is manifesting and, and all of its importance, you know, the big apple, and it all comes down to this is what's fueling the whole thing. And, of course, if we can check that Attraction between man and woman, we can build another city. Tad Janatadu Yasmin Patisloka 
If we can understand the one, one sloka of Srimad Bhagavatam, another creation, the whole spiritual world. So he was able to collect, uh, be so conscious of the external world, but in doing so, so conscious of Krishna at the same time. And living in New York in the early days, as I mentioned, in the Bowery, no system of Madhukari there, I told that fellow. There was no assurance he would get a chapati anywhere, where he would spend the night. This kind of sacrifice and austerity it was like he had gone to another planet and he didn't even have a spacesuit. He was wearing his, his dhoti. He didn't put on a, the shoes and the western attire. He remained in his sannyas vesh and had faith in Harinam. Sat in the park, chanted Hare Krishna. So this is, to me, unimaginable. Especially in New York winter, the New York winters, it's possible Prabhupada had never seen snow before. And I want to speak it to the extent to which it snows, can snow in New York and icy winters, and he didn't know where he would stay, practically. He was a homeless person from an ex- external point of view, but in his heart he carried the potential for a, a house, a home, as it was said about him also in his astrological chart, that the whole world could live within. Prabhupada, in his heart, built a house in which the whole world could live. His heart was so big. And see how, the example of this is, he extended himself to us. We were the kind of people, even after we were initiated, that some persons who called themselves Gaudiya Vaishnavas and were highly respected for being Gaudiya Vaishnavas would be careful not to stand in the shadow of, for fear that they, they would lose their standing in Vaishnavism or their caste that they still identified with to some extent. So contaminating we were. And Prabhupada lived with us, cooked for us, even he did the laundry for the devotees at some point in New York, and certainly ate everything they they offered. Because he, again, he, he, he understood uh, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission is for everyone. He wasn't living at all on the bodily platform of life. So he could involve himself as he did in such extremes of austerities that it's shocking to hear about, to think about. If we think that for a few days we'll be somewhere we don't know where we are, we're lost. We have no money. We take you and just drop you off someplace and you have no money. We'll be frightened by the idea. Without any any trace of fear. So, so we should understand, so comforting. There is a real spiritual world. There is a real ground to stand on. If we thrust ourselves into what appears to be uh, the invisible, there's real ground to stand on. Persons like Prabhupada illustrate that for us very wonderfully. There was some backing, invisible backing, that he had, and he had the confidence in that invisible backing, and therefore he could endure such uh, conditions that make the ordinary madhukari seem uh, insignificant in comparison. Prabhupada... uh, of course, spoke in a very basic way about Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And sometimes people think that maybe he didn't know so many of, the, many of the deeper points because he didn't speak about them at length. Prabhupada was more, more characteristically would respond to questions about higher topics, about Krishna Leela, with something like, why don't you uh, go there and find out? I mean, he could have shared s- some information, but he felt that he had given a means by which you could actually go there and know for yourself and that that should be your focus. 
And not that we shouldn't gather information theoretically and so forth, but if we just become, our Krishna consciousness becomes information gathering, then everything's lost. So, from his example and the power of the Shakti, Chaitanya Charitamrita says, Krishna Shakti Vinay Nahi Tar Pravartana. One cannot effectively spread the holy name of Krishna, distribute that, without being empowered by Krishna Shakti. So what is that Krishna Shakti? In Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu, Rupa Goswami has explained, Sudha Shatva Visheshatma Prema Suryam Su Samyabhak. He says that Bhava Bhakti is a ray of the sun of Prema, first ray of the sun of Prema dawning in the heart. And it's it's constituted of the uh, Samvit and Ladini Shakti. Of the Swarup Shakti, there's Sandini, Samvit, Ladini. So these two, Ladini and Samvit in particular, making up this uh, Bhava. This is Krishna Shakti. So who has this, has power to distribute, has Adhikar, the right to distribute the Holy Name, the power to distribute that. So my own personal experience and experience of so many of his disciples if they stop, however distracted they, they may become over the years, and reflect upon that, they can understand his greatness and his depth of penetration into Krishna consciousness, even though he didn't go at lengths to explain sometimes greater, finer details of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. No, he knew the whole thing. I've said before that it comes out in a beautiful way in his poem that he wrote on the crossing of the ocean as he approached the Boston Harbor, where he negotiated with Krishna, a friendly spirit, in his poem. Not a poem that he wrote for publishing, but a personal prayer, a prayer to Lord Krishna, he entitled it. And in that prayer he negotiated with Krishna to give him the power to be successful in fulfilling the order of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur for preaching in the Western world. And there we find the very heart of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in that prayer. That Prabhupada was very, um, he didn't miss a trick. I mean, he he knew what Gaudiya Vaishnavism was about. I mentioned last night Vishva, uh, the Chaitanya Goswami, how I'd been speaking with him on one occasion, and he was glorifying Prabhupada, and then he glorified Vivekananda for being a moralist and so forth. And, but one of the other things that he said in that conversation is that when I met Prabhupada, he said, I, I was very charmed by him, and I was just a, uh, a lad, and I guess that they hosted Prabhupada at his house. And so he asked Prabhupada the question, he said, how to please Krishna? How can we please Krishna? And Jaitanya Goswami said, oh, I was so happy to hear his answer. He told that we should please that person who Krishna is trying to please, always, Radha. He said, then I knew. He knows everything. Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <laughs> so in a simple way, he was appreciating. And this is what, of course, comes out in that prayer. Prabhupada's negotiating with Krishna. He says, oh, my dear bhai, my dear friend, my dear brother, it will be good for you if you do something by which you win the favor of Radha. And this is known by everyone. This is fixed. Dhruva, he used the word, means fixed, like the pole star. It said it's fixed, and everything's orbiting around it. So this is fixed forever, like in the heavens, like the like the pole star. It will never change. It's irrevocable. Your position is that you will do good for yourself. Your personal position will be improved if you can please Radha. 
This is Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Such a charming way Prabhupada is negotiating with Krishna, like a friend of Krishna. And he said, My Gurudev, Bhaktisiddham Sarasati Thakur, who represents the camp of Radha, has asked me to do this, and therefore I'm telling you, you better give me the power to do it. Because if you don't, Radharadi won't be pleased with you. And that one will, what will your position be then? And if you do, then you'll get the favor of Radha and your life will be successful. This is very intimate and very high. And this transaction, negotiation, that Prabhupada entered into with Krishna, heartfelt, he was uh, successful in his negotiations in no small measure. He got the power in such a big way to fulfill the desires of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. To such an extent that Sridharmarsh once commented that Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur once mentioned, uh, not, uh, more than once, several times mentioned that he wanted that he could have his life extended to the point that he could experience ten years in America. At that time, Britain was the leading country in the world. But Saraswati Thakur had a vision that America would become the most prominent country in the world. And, of course, he passed from the world before America came to prominence after World War II, and he never got the chance to go there. But Sridharmarsh reasoned that my Guru Maharaj's ambitions, spiritual as they are, can never go, cannot go unfulfilled. And in my estimation, he got ten years plus two in the form of Bhaktivedanta Sami Prabhupada, in whom Bhaktivedanta Sastra lived in those years, because Prabhupada preached for twelve years in America. So in no small measure he fulfilled the, or played a large part in fulfilling the ambition of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, his suggestion, which Prabhupada took as an order. This is another characteristic of Prabhupada. That, um, this verse from Bhagavad Gita, we should have fixed intelligence, fixed nishta, fixed in serving Krishna. And Prabhupada's commentary in that, he cites Vishwana Chakravati Thakur's commentary, where the Chakravati Thakur cites his own Guru Vastakam, stanzas and glorification of the Guru, the final sloka, the eighth sloka, which says, Yasya Prasadat Bhagavat Prasadu Yasya Prasadanagati Kutopi. Chakravati Thakur said, this is what this verse means, that that fixation for pleasing Krishna should be focused locally on that manifestation of Krishna that has come close to us to deal with us. Locally. This is Sri Guru. Krishna delegates, designates different Vaishnavas to represent him in different ways for different persons. And that local manifestation of Krishna's outreach to us, that's where we should pay attention most. That will draw Krishna's attention to us. Siddhamarsh once told us, if in your bhajan Krishna gives you darshan and asks you for something, Tell him to wait a minute and go back and ask your guru, is that the person that you're talking about? Is that the one? You know, Prabhupada, his, uh, his life really um, exemplified this kind of devotion. He commented on that verse in Bhagavad Gita, by quoting Thakur, and he lived like that, so much so that, as I say, the suggestion that came from Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, that I think it would be good for you to preach in the English language, in a letter that he sent about two weeks before he passed from the world, letter to Prabhupada in response to Prabhupada's letter to him asking Guru Maharaj, I'm not in, inside of the mission, I'm a householder living outside, what service can I render? Please give me some service. I think it would be good for you if you preach in the English language. 
Prabhupada took it as an order. My Guru Maharaj just ordered me to preach. He folk that one letter. Prabhupada said the total amount of time that he spent with his Guru Dave was about two weeks if he could put all the times that they met together personally. So how much he took advantage of each time and each word and every everything that Bhakti Siddhartha said to him personally. This one letter, suggestion, Prabhupada took it as a personal order and his whole mission was based on that. Any time after one of his major accomplishments, establishing a temple and so forth, and he would come to participate in the opening, give a lecture, he'd say that my only credit is I strictly follow the orders of my Guru He asked me, he ordered me to preach in English. And, but it was really a suggestion. He took it like an order, like his life and soul. And so in no small measure he fulfilled the uh, ambitions of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur for worldwide preaching. And that uh, emptying himself out, self-sacrificing, that kind of negotiation with Krishna is all in, in the background. If we look to that, then we can understand what good fortune it is that we have to be connected with him his, in this great lineage of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. But Prabhupada used to call his mission the, the um, mission of Bhaktivinoda. If you study carefully, you'll find that's how he thought of it, and appropriately so, because Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur taught all of his disciples to conceive of their mission as Bhakti Vinod Paribar, which means the mission, the family of Thakur Bhakti Vinod. Bhakti Vinod Thakur was called by a learned person in Calcutta, an editor for one of the principal papers, the seventh Goswami, because his writing was extraordinary in what he was doing in terms of bringing dignity to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, excavating it, so so to speak, from, from the depths of degradation that it had fallen into, and um, putting a proper light on it, he thought, and appropriately so, was analogous to the work of the Goswamis who established the whole Sampradaya to begin with. So he called him the seventh Goswami, and therefore Bhakti Siddhanta Thakur used to say that his paribara was Bhakti Vinod paribara. Paribara means, if you go to Bengal, I'll ask you, what is your paribara? If you're a Vaishnava, are you in the Puribar of Nityananda or Garadhar, Advaita Puribar, or from the Goswamis, one of the immediate associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who started lineages? You're supposed to be coming in one of those. So, in a very dynamic way, Saraswati Thakur says, We are in the Bhaktivinod Puribar, seventh Goswami. So, Prabhupada thought of his mission like that, and it's a very glorious mission, this Paribara of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, coming from Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and we are fortunate to be connected with that, and to be connected with that some one extent or another through all of us, really. Everybody all over the world who is connected with Gaudiya Vaishnavism by the grace of Prabhupada, the expansive preaching of Srila Prabhupada. We are fortunate to be able to honor that on a day like this, to speak about it to some extent. And um, we should be convinced, without a doubt, that to be involved in this kind of a mission that uh, represents Om Vishnu Pajula Esi Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, we couldn't be in a more... In, in, there's nothing better we could do with our lives. So we should try to make some self... factor some self-sacrifice into our lives based on his example. There's no way that we could possibly meet his standards like the standards of the Goswamis themselves. 
Sridharan Pramarsh once said, they took jewels and drilled holes in them. Like if you're going to make a garland of jewels. So the Goswamis, what they did, the, the lifestyle, the example that they set was so, it's frightening to us. The standard of their renunciation. They were dealing with the edifice of Mayavad philosophy, Advaita Vedanta, and trying to show that this bhakti marg, this worship of Radha and Krishna, involves as much renunciation as is the standard in Advaita Vedanta and affords more. And they wanted to show that that high ideal of Radha and Krishna's love is not about material interaction between man and woman. So you have to cross through renunciation to come to that plane. So they led very, I mean, they're, they're gopis, but they're leading frightening lives. Raghunath Goswami's eating habits in Jagannath Puri, if we hear about that from Chaitanya Charitamrita, we'll be frightened. If we think, if we just think that's the standard. And how he pleased Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with that, by that. We hear they were living under a different tree every night and so forth. They demonstrated, we're, our path requires as much renunciation. They frightened the, the Advaitins, practically. And then they wrote their books and so forth. And so if we hear about their life, we, we think, oh God, we couldn't possibly live like that. And uh, so Siddhartha said, they, they took jewels and they drilled holes in them. That's very hard. And they left for us just to put the string in. That's all. They made it easy for us to put the string in. Left us something to do, you, you put the string in. You, you tie the knot. You put it on Krishna. This is their kindness. And we should think of Prabhupada in the same way, because when we talk about, and we just done it really uh, superficially, unfortunately, based on the time and, and my own lack of uh, realization, what was the measure and extent of his his sacrifice. But when we think of it, and we should appreciate like this, that, that in our lives, on days like this, we should think, I should factor some sacrifice into my life. That will give me real connection with Prabhupada. Not simply talking about his accomplishments and thinking, my guru is great, he accomplished so many things. Implication being, therefore I'm great. <laughs> As well, our own greatness will have to be tested. It's great for us that we have such a connection, but we should live up to the greatness of that connection by taking steps to be great ourselves, by factoring some element of sacrifice into our life. And how much? Enough that you feel a pinch. If a rich man gives a hundred dollars, that's nothing for him. And if a poor man gives a paisa, it may be a great sacrifice. Giving means, in the beginning, we have to feel the pinch. That much we should give. If we're not feeling any pinch, then we're not on the on the cutting edge of sacrificing. And to that extent, we're not connected with what Prabhupada is all about. We have a, we're like the bee on the outside of the jar of honey. No tasting. There's no getting without giving. So if we wonder, I'm not getting, then start giving. Start sacrificing, and then it will come. And we have to get to the point where we don't think about getting. We only think about giving. And that's what Prabhupada was doing. Only, th he could, he could only be thinking about giving to do what he did. 
come to America under the conditions like, that we described and so forth to deal with us and only thinking about giving and so much he got he used to say ah, I used to have uh, one wife and a couple of sons and and uh, what do you have two, two sons three sons daughter he said and none of them obeyed me so you know, for a son probably to have sons that obey and daughters that's that's very nice none of them obeyed me but I left them it means I left that small situation of the family life where I'm thinking of me and my family and and I became a, a man of the world <laughs> a universe a man of universal thinking I started to see everyone as my fa family member every man every woman every child every moving and non-moving thing as part of the family of Krishna they said and now I have houses in every major city and I have thousands of obedient sons and daughters so obedient they'll do whatever I say so to be connected with that we have to start giving and we have to reach the point at the time where we forget about giving now we'll give because we hear that we'll get but if we really give we'll get and lose sight of getting and just give this is what love is about this is what Vrindavan is about they're only giving their whole existence every atom of it fully dedicated to Krishna so on a day like this we, we should remember this and we should remember our good fortune for being connected with Prabhupada and then think reflect on what it means how we can get closer I should say be really connected it's on the plane of consciousness it's not that we can say some words and offer some fruits and flowers as he said we offer ourselves. and that will mean different things for different people and as I've said many times this is, uh, in the words of Bhaktivinoda, true beauty, to know your position. So for a brahmachari, it may mean, mean one thing. For a man who's thinking, maybe I should be a brahmachari. It may mean, it may, it may mean that yes, he should do that. Another man who's thinking, I don't know, no way I could be a brahmachari. Then, inside of that, he should think how to factor some sacrificing. So appropriately, in, in terms of our, our situation, measure of our conviction and our desires and so forth, all these things that be taken in consideration and then sacrifice. The duty for every devotee is the same, whether they're a sannyasi or a householder, it doesn't make any difference. The, the duty is the same, sacrificing for Krishna, but it will take a different shape, that's all. So factor this into your life, think of Prabhupada's example in this regard, and really enter into the Bhaktivinoda Paribhara. That is my own personal hope, and so I hope that you will also Hope that. Esi Bhaktivedanta Sami Prabhupada ki jai. Avibhava Mahotsula Esi Bhaktivedanta Sami Prabhupada ki jai. Shri Vyasa Puja Esi Bhaktivedanta Sami Prabhupada ki jai.